Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieras, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. That's right. Good. No need for you to go just yet. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian. ASMR Brian. I'm here. Today's episode is, this is good, isn't it? Wrapping up our coverage of Metal Gear Solid 4, Guns of the Patriots. We'll hit all the usual beats on setting, imperialism, and power fantasies, but first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. Oh, I just realized we've hit all three of those now, haven't we? Um, we know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller, but we we are what a couple episodes away from meeting uh, yeah, Master. Yeah, we Miller still know his fate. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we have officially uh, crossed everything off the list. Damn. And so it's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. You know all this already, so I won't belabor the point. We'll start our wrap-up in a familiar place, with a discussion about setting. Less familiar may be the fact that this is the first solid title to take place in multiple countries, giving it a globetrotting ad- adventure akin to the 007 fare MGS borrows from heavily. And if this was to be Kojima and Solid Snake's last mission, elevating MGS to a multi-setting adventure is an easy way to add grandeur to both plot and themes. The link between all the settings in MGS4 is how America has imperiled these regions over the last century, and the times will matter as much as the scene in this analysis. Act 1 opens in the Middle East, which is of course ground zeroes for the War on Terror and at the forefront of the zeitgeist during this game's production. It's full-on modern warfare, almost incomprehensible in terms of what is going on as architecture that stood for centuries crumbles around Snake, with smoke and gas filling the air for a literal fog of war. Forever war in one of its earliest and starkest portrayals yet. Where Act 1 represents the battlefield of the aughts, Act 2 takes us to South America, the theater for the proxy wars during much of the 70s and 80s, and you'd be a fool to believe the U.S. isn't still saber-rattling down there against democratically elected socialist governments. See most what? recently see most recently Honduras, which just elected a left-wing woman president after 12 years of right-wing U.S.-backed rule. Instead of close-quartered urban combat here, we have larger jungle maps primed for guerrilla warfare. Act 3 takes us to Eastern Europe, to a city that most likely resided directly on the Iron Curtain during the Cold War. East and West Germany, the Berlin Wall, and stories like the spy who came in from the cold are the vibe here, reflecting the frontier where America first pushed its hegemonic capitalist worldview following World War II. To reflect the 60s and its gameplay, this act has us doing some of those John Le Carre-style spy stuff, tailing resistant members and finding secret hideouts. 
The final two acts take us to the Aleutian Islands in the Pacific, where perhaps the modern American century was born, punctuated with the war crimes of bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We talked a lot about Alaska back in our sixth episode to wrap up MGS-1. The Aleutians were key staging posts during World War II, and of course, all of Alaska was taken from the indigenous tribes who inhabited the land before Russia and the U.S. took it as their own. And yeah, Act 5 has us in the Pacific proper, full-on with a World War II battleship as if this was the new Battle of Midway. But instead of fighter planes, the battle to end the game is with rays and geckos and frogs to reflect this broken world of snakes and metal gears. What MGS4 does is take us on a tour through the last 60 years of American imperialism, from our current current wars for oil, to our previous wars for capitalist ideology, and then back to World War II, perhaps the last time there seemed to be any real moral backing to the U.S. war machine. Of course, we did a bunch of war crimes while obscuring Soviet accomplishments against Nazi Germany. In the run-up to MGSV, Kojima talked about the 20th century as the American century, and how the 21st century may not belong to the U.S., Four has us reflect back on the American century as we can see how a belligerent empire has shaped this world to the point where war became routine. Whatever high ideals may have existed when fighting the Nazis in World War II gave way to proxy wars over resources and ideology. Like, I've been talking a lot of shit about this game, but I think this is one of the things that just, like, works, like, unequivocally. So I don't really have anything... It's weird, I don't really have anything negative to say about it, but I also... It's just kind of hard to talk about. Like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's what Metal Gear Solid 4 is about. There's not really anything else to say about it. Maybe that's just me being, like, not wanting to give this game credit for stuff, but I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. Don't worry. I have a lot more to say about it, and I'm going to give this game way too much credit. Hopefully it'll annoy you before this is all over. And while the focus is very clearly on the world at war, its externalities can't be ignored either. Climate change doesn't get a major focus in this game, but it is brought up often, especially when our cast returns to Shadow Moses and we learn much of the Fox Islands have begun slipping back into the Pacific Ocean. And of course, the economics of it all, which we will highlight more in the next section. Maybe fittingly, since the scope of this game is the entire planet, Snake and Otacon operate out of the Nomad the entire game. The world is so broken, and with no place to hide, or hideo, Being wanderers is the only recourse. But at the same time, while being a haven from the outside world, it's also a womb for Sunny, preventing her from even even being born, in Naomi's words. And lastly, the game somewhat opens and closes at Arlington Cemetery, a graveyard for soldiers. And this game is, if nothing else, a graveyard for soldiers. Even if you, the player, acts completely non-lethally and as benevolently as possible in saving militiamen, The body count as you crawl through these five acts is massive. The Middle East opens with the local resistance getting demolished by Gecko, and it never lets up. A world where war and economics are so deeply intertwined and feeding each other can only be a dystopia, a literal hell world. The real money in this game is violence, and we see it's the one universal currency in a world sans frontieres. And this age chose to act through economics instead of nation-states. Powered by the industrial and digital revolutions that came before it, this age gave birth to a twisted economic revolution, a battlefield revolution. It created a new world without substance. 
In this new world, there were no ideologies, no principles, no ideals, not even the thing she treasured most, loyalty. There was only the war economy. The setting discussion will help us move into broader themes of American imperialism. As with everything else, a lot of what we'll discuss today has been broached by previous Metal Gear entries, but the way MGS4 carries those memes forward is where to focus. Imperialism and technology have always been intertwined in Metal Gear. Our coverage of the first solid title focused heavily on the Revolution of Military Affairs, or RMA, while in Sons of Liberty, we were able to zoom out and look at the rapidly changing digital landscape at the turn of the century and how it was about to be engulfed in truth. While those games teased out what sort of dystopia world of Metal Gears and Snakes would lead to, MGS4 hits us in the face with it, right from the get-go. Or should I say gecko, as witnessed in the game's opening scenes. Imperial technology is most pronounced here by unmanned weapons, a meme Kojima will carry forward to Peace Walker and beyond. In the wake of the War on Terror, the reliance on unmanned vehicles and weapons has increased exponentially. Drones have become the weapon to surpass Metal Gear, creating this horrible panopticon run by whoever sits at the seat of U.S. Empire. And Boston Dynamics keeps trying to impress us with dancing dog robots, which look quite a bit like Crying Wolf, but we know it's only a matter of time before those are outfitted with explosives and body armor too. According to Air War News, at least 22,000 and upwards of 40,000 people have been killed by U.S. manned weapons. It's truly hard to get a firm grasp on numbers because when you turn a wedding into a crater, it's hard to tell just how many bodies were liquefied in the process. In MGS4, Gecko act as that missing link between artillery and infantry, and it's already been commodified and mass-produced by the U.S. Army. They effectively take over the battlefield. In the first couple acts, they are used to accentuate key moments in the story, but like war, they become routine, becoming the standard sentry and patrol in Shadow Moses and on Haven. In their physical simplicity, they have broader lines of sight, more firepower, and more maneuverability than average soldiers, making them a natural evolution. The smaller dwarf gecko, thanks to three prosthetic arms, are able to get just about anywhere and swarm their targets. Both, in effect, will easily handle the player unless you're overpowered. The general tactic is to avoid the unmanned weapons rather than blasting past them. For this game. This is a tough one because I think I want to give Peace Walker more credit, but I also, like you said, I don't think he would have gone to where they went with the unmanned stuff in Peace Walker if they hadn't gone here first. I think it's also, it's it's gets some credit for being, again, that kind of prescient, that Metal Gear style prescience where it seems, it's, you know, being the not too distant future gives it leeway to sort of extrapolate on the current events of late two thousands, like that all that, you know all the all the Boston dynamics stuff, all the all the where it. I guess it wasn't that hard to see where where this stuff was going, where warfare was going, and I think it's a pretty reasonable extrapolation. It's not quite like I I, I poke fun sometimes. It's a game that I love. I love. Deus Ex Mankind or Human Revolution, Mankind Divided is fine. Um, but it is funny that I came it came out in 2011 and it's set in the far flung future year of 2027. And it's uh six years from there, and we don't have we don't have uh, those kind of implants, we don't have neuropathy, we don't have these super sleek techno blade runner style Detroit. I mean, maybe we will, maybe they'll renew it again. We don't have a giant plate city over part of China. Like Midgar style, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like Metal Gear Solid Four is not that doesn't go that far. 
I think it, I think it's a lot more reasoned and sort of vaguely realistic, like future techno techno war setting, which is mm-hmm. to its credit. Yeah. And we'll talk about pacifism later in this episode, mm-hmm. but a part of the unmanned weapon bent is also it allows Kojima to play with non-lethal types of gameplay more. Um, yeah. So you can still bust out your rockets and your grenade launchers while not necessarily killing people. So I think some of it is the gameplay allowing him to do other kind of stealth stuff, especially as mm-hmm. not killing soldiers um, becomes r- much more important in Peace Walker and V because you start getting your rankings like per mission, like S rank. And in Peace Walker specifically, you can only get it if you don't kill anyone yep. um, on that level. So again, in an effort to not be as mean to this game, the gecko are just cool. Like they have, it's a cool design. It's weird and off-putting, but also like vaguely realistic. It has that. I really like that MGS for texture, like the the light, like their weird synth metal texture. It's cool looking. It's it's a good Ghost in the Shell style, like weird future texture that you don't see as much as you should. Mm-hmm. People, I think people go too much for, um, and this is this is a diff, different conversation entirely. This came out before. I mean, eighty stuff has always been, I think, popular. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you look at like stuff that's come out in the last ten years, like Cyberpunk, even the Deus Ex games to an extent. But like anything that's like uh, there's a whole cottage industry of these games. I guess they're not cottage industry; they're not supported themselves. Um, there's a whole sub genre of game that's sort of like um, '80s tech stuff, like you know, like 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 literally Cyberpunk stuff, like like Neuromancer, that kind of stuff. And like that stuff's great, but like I, I, all that like. Like janky cable, like all these huge cables and all this like synthetic skin, and like you know, you know, like the you know the eighties glasses, like all that mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. That sort of is completely supplanted what was like the cool, sleek, weird, like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Perspective, future stuff that we had in the early two thousands, and this this is a good example of that aesthetic, and I, I like it. Mm-hmm. It's. It's an interesting way. It's it's aged a lot better than a lot of '90s future stuff has. I agree with that, yeah. and I definitely a lot better than '80s future stuff. But the, I think I think part of that is that because it's closer to reality, people just aren't interested in playing it. They don't get as much out of it. Yeah, I think at this point, with the exception of um, Metal Gear Solid Three, for obvious reasons, every Metal Gear Solid is essentially set five to eight years mm-hmm. in the future of whenever the game's release date is. Um, so I think part of it is also just, um, they know they can't go too far out there. Yeah. Of course it doesn't stop them from like magic, you know, psycho ghost people. Um, but that's not tech technically. Yeah. It's I true, mean, true. It, it's, it's right is tech a lot, but that's actual supernatural stuff, which mm-hmm. less like our real world, but very metal gear is the combination of technology and biology, how machines can support man and sometimes vice versa. The gecko make mooing sounds and will bleed as their legs are made of artificially grown muscle tissue that behave like mammal legs down to creeping on its toes. The dwarf edition obviously use their hands to get around and shoot pistols, and as highlighted, we even have three dwarf gecko in a hat and trench coat bit to metaphor machine in the place of man. The most notable infusion of biology and mechanics is the Beauty and the Beast Corps, who can barely be kept alive outside their metallic shells. This echoes previous themes forwarded by Gray Fox, while also making clear that these snakehound members are forever broken by P- PTSD and war. The two are inextricable from each other, techn- technological advancement for war, and the loss of humanity that comes from it. 
For what it's worth, all these technological horrors aren't just implemented by the baddies. Snake pilots his own unmanned weapon in the Mark II or Mark III. Him and Raiden's bodies are held together by technology to very different degrees. And even the Fox Alive computer virus is supposed to be a mimetic successor to the biological virus of Fox Die. And honestly, look at the Sons of the Patriot system, which Naomi said was going to be implemented on civilians in addition to the military. So much of its purpose, like monitoring heart rate, vitals, intake, outtake, and sleep, is stuff most people do every day now with the bevy of health apps and Fitbit products. It may not be quite as dire as nanomachines, but we're all sending our biometric data to Fitbit, Apple, Google, and Lord knows who else. This is the thing Cyberpunk has. I mean, Cyberpunk the genre, not Cyberpunk the mediocre game. Um, it's one of the reasons I think Cyberpunk has sort of endured, is that it may be the only dystopian future setting that correctly predicted that most of this stuff would be done to generate ad revenue and just make just squeeze money out of people until they die because like nobody is going to the effort of implementing a series of of monitoring devices on on all people just to control them it's like no they want to sell you stuff so that's that's what it is that's that's what they're going for so like you know, it's not really any more complicated than that. They don't put more effort in it than that. And um, it is, you're right, though, 100% that, like, I started seeing Fitbit stuff, and I, I definitely thought of MGS4 the first time I saw one. Because it was right around when I played it, I think, when I first started seeing some. And I think, I think the first time I saw one of those in person would have been right after I played this. I think the bigger fear now is less that, you know, someone's trying to control you with these things, but more like, oh, we're going to deny you health insurance because you have mm-hmm. a pre-existing condition because we saw your heart rate monitor or, you know, some bullshit like that. I'm not saying that's actually happened specifically, though I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> I went to the hospital earlier this year because I had, I thought I had a, it was going to make a panic attack, but I was monitoring my blood sugar for a few days afterwards just to, you know, keep an eye on it. And I was actually using my mother's, she's not, she's not diabetic, but she has been told to monitor hers before. And she had to make sure that I didn't upload the findings, the readings in case they were lower than hers because her insurance would see it and deny her coverage. They're like, Oh, your blood sugar is doing better. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, no, that's, that is deliberate. That is a thing that has explicitly happened to me. So yeah, fun. In conclusion, the U S healthcare system fucking sucks ass. Um, and is created to, uh, get the most money out of sick people as possible. I don't know how it could be worse. Another topic that falls broadly under the technology and imperialism umbrella is video games, or the military entertainment complex. In our opening episode, we discussed how much of this game is a response to first-person shooters of the era, to the point where one of the game's earlier trailers teases a first-person shooter experience before Old Snake shows up on screen and the words, not FPS, MGS, flash on the screen. War has become routine is a refrain we focused on a lot, but it applies to video games just as much as actual war. FPSs by this point had standardized controls, such as shouldering and firing weapons, and franchises have been annualized like Call of Duty, so that year over year you will basically get the same game in a new, though often flat, environment, and slightly better graphics. 
The worlds of FPSs are often uninteresting and not very interactive beyond what you can blow up to kill more people. And just to be clear, I'm speaking mostly about military action games. I'm not like throwing in halos and all first person or games into this. He's saying that because I'm behind him with a gun, with the, with the gravity gun from Half-Life 2. And I'm aiming a, saw, big, a big saw blade I pulled out of a wall at his head. This is where I will hand it to Metal Gear broadly and MGS4 specifically even. We've long talked about how these games are often built environment first, with a focus on interactivity and hidden mechanics. Each MGS entry takes us to new environments, but all of them pack on new systems and ideas to the point where games are basically rebuilt from scratch, not being able to rely on previous assets. And then there is the psych meter, an all-encompassing mental health status for the player. Other war games don't even pretend that murking thousands of dudes matter or has any effect on the player within the game or without. MGS4, in contrast, will see Snake vomit if he kills too much, get adrenaline highs, and him and soldiers have a wide range of emotional states that bring to life the horrors of the battlefield, no matter how much nanomachines try to condition them otherwise. There's an interesting thing here, and I think this, I can't think of anything before MGS4 that did that. That had, because there are plenty of um, morality meters. Like you played enough Kotor now to see that one's in there, mm-hmm. and like that stuff existed. But it also it, it tended to exist sort of independent of any sort of like no matter like if you were killing righteous for righteous reasons, it didn't matter. Like the game was like, yeah, that's fine. You can kill as many people as you want. But then, yeah, a few years after this, Dishonored had the the chaos system. I think specifically Spec Ops Line de- deliberately dealt with mm-hmm. that concept. Um, I guess Bioshock came before this, but Bioshock didn't really care about killing people. Bioshock sort of doesn't consider the enemies to be humans because I think that theoretically they're they're sort of they've been they've all been driven mad with gene splicing and all this weird shit. So like they just don't they. Just, I mean I, I don't want to Bioshock has some weird morality stuff in it that I don't think works as well as it did in 2007. But I, I think as far as that game is concerned, like the splicers are just sort of not people anymore. Like they've just. They're just sort of they're almost zombies. Mm-hmm. Um so I think I think that's a different kind, like that's a different level. Like that's I don't know, like you that sort of gets into zombie fiction, which is a entirely different take takes this um you could never accuse a zombie thing of, of having people not feel the effect of having to kill zombies. Like that's mm-hmm. the whole thing. It's like, oh, this is tiring. I hate doing it. Um but yeah, I can't think of any games that had any sort of real I mean MGS3. But there's no major games I can think of that really, aside from giving you a different score, but like that's not what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And he's that, that really delved into any with any sort of specificity the the toll that just relentlessly murdering people would have on you. The the, the reason like why it's the only real complaint I have about the Uncharted games is that it's it's incredible that Nathan Drake is not institutionalized because he's he's just killing 50 people a day mm-hmm. like at a certain point that would like he's a complete sociopath then i guess but um yeah i don't know man that's again i'm being positive about mgs4 that's it's a great the psych meter is cool and maybe they don't use it enough i think that's my only real complaint yeah i'd agree with that it's 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 a gimmick it's not it is i guess that is the problem with this one of the problems with this game is it has a lot of still has all the same good ideas but they aren't implemented as interestingly like, imagine if you only had to do the camo once in a while in 3, mm-hmm. and not all the time. I think that's, yeah. Whenever this game talks about conditioning the masses, especially in favor of the war economy, video games get explicitly called out in the process. 
The standardization of FPS controls, which spills over into this game, makes every video game a potential launchpad to signing up for military service, and that connection isn't really that tenuous. We know Army recruiters often invoke video game power fantasies, and the U.S. military has collaborated with video game developers on their war games. Hell, we even see a Call of Duty Modern Warfare title rewrite history by claiming the Highway of Death, a Gulf War U.S. war crime, was actually done by Russians, which fits so snugly into American politics of the last five years. This sounds quite like the Patriot AIs creating context, or in this case, recontextualizing U.S. history to keep our exceptionalism intact. Video games have lost the thread on violence long ago, so the fact that Kojima never loses sight of this is always a plus in Metal Gear's favor. Initially, MGS4 was conceived as Snake being in between nondescript factions that the player could align with either, but just like Kojima believes games should have a point, he made it clear that there was always an oppressor, Ocelot as a stand-in for the U.S. Empire, and oppressed local militia in each scenario. Call of Duty and its ilk, in contrast, may be indiscriminate in who is responsible for what, but not these Metal Gear games. Before I head off the video game topic, now's a good point to mention that Kojima is aware of of his own role in all of this. While MGS has remained adamantly pacifist and anti-war, at least in my opinion, it's hard to deny that Metal Gear Solid 1998 became a template, an ideal, a golden calf for the military action game. Most protagonists physically resemble Snake, and the expansive weaponry and attention to military detail take off from the turn of century to become the dominant video game genre, and the rise of Western game developers to be on par and surpass Japanese developers, at least in sales in the West. While Snake and Otacon are trying to atone for their sins, I can see Kojima trying to do the same. Every time the blight of violent video games is discussed in-game, it is symbolized by previous Metal Gear Solid titles. When Eva talks about video games telling children they should pick up guns, we see screenshots from the MSX-era Metal Gears through Portable Ops, the most recent semi-canonical release at the time. In a way, it speaks to the difficulty in making truly anti-war art, especially in a visual medium. Look, I'm both biased and leftist, so my unapologetic anti-imperialist reading of Metal Gear Solid is what it is but wrapped in hyper-masculine and hyper-military trappings has many people taking the wrong messages away from Kojima's games, and I think this game is in part an acknowledgement of Kojima's sins in that regard. And I, I would think, I, I, I mostly agree, I think the games, every single game, uh, maybe in particular the one we're going to do after this one, is very specifically anti-imperialist and anti-war in messaging, but the tone is where I think there's some confusion because... I think if you were going to make a truly anti-war game, like again, I don't, I don't think Spec Ops is like a great game, but that game I think does achieve like there, at no point is is anything you're doing heroic or redeemable in any way. You're you're just killing people. You're just slaughtering people. Mm-hmm. Um, this game still has to have like he still loves action movies too much, and he has to give Snake cool hero moments. So I think mm-hmm. that's where that stuff comes from. Um. Weirdly, I actually think this is something I, I I really this is I really want to kind of circle back with this with Revengeance because even though that's the most hyper violent game in the series by a lot, I think it has the most. I think it has like Ryan. I'm not spoiling the game. Ryan basically goes insane over the course of that game from <laughs> slaughtering a bunch of. Even though I, I think it would have worked better if they could have ended up getting, because famously in that game I. Um, 
they at one point removed, they were going to be like normal human enemies you fought and you could slice up and they're not, they're all cyborgs, but it's still like, it, it, there's, there's some, it's not a very long game, but I still had, to, I, I definitely had to take breaks. The acts, the chapters are mostly, uh, digestible on their own, but I still had to take breaks in between those. Cause sometimes it's just a lot of, you were killing, you were slicing up a lot of people when that came and, uh, Raiden kind of feels it. I think he just kind of loses his mind over the course of that game, which I think is a, probably a more, I don't want to say it's an extension of the psych meter, but I think it's a more realistic, like you would just completely disassociate if you were doing this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe the fact that snake isn't is another sign of how his, his he's the ultimate masculine figure. And he's, I think what I'm, what I'm getting at is that it, if these games were really truly, again, I, I don't know if it's possible to make truly anti-war art while still sh- depicting war, but I think if they were going for that, then Snake would just be a detestable figure. <laughs> like, but then again, that's I don't know. Would people like the games? Then that's the thing. It's it's hard to really. There, there's a line there, and I'm not sure how you really tread it. And I know no one's gotten closer. So yeah, I mean, I I I can very confidently say like a Song of Ice and Fire and what Game of Thrones at least should have been is very anti-war, but that doesn't save it from having cool sword fights, cool battle. Like it just at a certain point, it's almost like. Because you also want it to be narrative affecting, and if it's just, you know, sludge and you hate everything about it, um, like I did The Walking Dead, then I just like tap out of the show. Um, you you want you want to at least have compelling characters and people in there um, so that you stick with it or become a vehicle that allows you to move through the narrative and the themes. I guess I guess the distinction here is you could make anti-war art; it's just not enjoyable at all. It's not entertaining. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. yeah, I think that that's good. People should be doing that. I I think we should still be, but I just I'm also not sure how you make that into a multi million dollar big budget video game. For sure, for sure. If any, but again, if anyone had the power to do it and had would have gotten the leeway, it would have been that'd be a more interesting MGS four, huh? Where it was just like a complete sludge through it, and it was just horrible to experience, and everyone was losing their mind, and it was just like insane and, and cacophonous. If the whole game was that part of the end of Act 1 where everyone goes crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it would certainly be an effective anti-war game, because I could imagine... But but yeah, I, the best thing I can say for this, as opposed to... You were thinking specifically, I think Medal of Honor was the one that the military was directly involved in. That That is specifically one, yes. I yeah. think they've also consulted on Call of Duty at this point, though. Um, but I think at the time, at the time, Medal of Honor was the dominant or at least second dominant of the military war. I mean, there, there is an entire spinoff series in Call of Duty that is explicitly about the CIA and how cool they are. Um, Black Ops? Yeah. Um, well, the first one wasn't really. I actually kind of liked that game, but then I think they people were like, cool. Again, you'll never believe that Call of Duty players missed the message, but people were like, cool, spec op stuff. So that's just what they did. Um, but um, what was I, I going to say? Hold on. I would I would say that like nobody's gotten closer, and definitely that unlike like Medal of Honor or even most Call of Duties, I can't really imagine someone playing this and being like, "I gotta join the army." Apparently, someone did at least with the first Metal Gear Solid title. This this game specifically. Yeah, no, absolutely agreed. This looks one like a is a great time. <laughs> uh, this one looks like literal hell. Yeah, well, because 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 war has changed. <laughs> we needed to get one in there. 
Um, one non-thematic point about all the times the uh, game shows MGS titles uh, during cutscenes, we'd often see a timeline of MGS games from Metal Gear 1987 to MGS 4 in 2008, but there would also be two under-construction entries in the listing, likely referring to both MGS Peace Walker and Revengeance, which were going to happen even without Kojima's involvement at the time, though he would obviously come back for Peace Walker, and I believe he produced Revengeance. Oh, wait, no, that went to a different studio. No, but he, he was involved. He was involved. Yeah. More than I think originally was planned. Mm-hmm. So I just want to clarify, when I talk about this supposed to be the last Metal Gear Solid game, I was actually more specifically meaning the last Kojima game and the last Solid Snake game. MGS was always destined to pass its meme down to the next generation otherwise. The proxies were only one small part of the vast cycle that Zero created. Corporations, for-profits, and research institutions that comprise the military-industrial complex were part of it, too. They operated on budgets automatically allotted to them by the proxies. Accounts maintained by the Patriots. But ultimately, the most pervasive extension of previous Imperial themes is in economics, i.e. the war economy. After the Patriot AIs fully took control in the 90s, they turned to forever war as the best means of propagating its system of control, pouring all technological efforts towards military R&D and that which can make the most money for the power brokers in the U.S. Look, I'm going to be me and use this point to squeeze in some Lenin. I'm the walrus especially his 1917 book, Imperialism, The Highest Stage of Capitalism. You can find PDFs of this online, try Marxist.org. With the growth of big banks and an emphasis on exporting capital in lieu of commodities, the capitalist powers that be, whether banks or proxies such as Western governments, started operating sans frontiers, that is to say, without borders, as large multinational banks and an international economy meant defying the normal boundaries of nation-states. While a leftist, I'm no scholar, and I don't want to misrepresent the works of Comrade Vlad, nor am I trying to ascribe Kojima inherently communist positions. But I do want to emphasize that capitalism and imperialism go hand in hand. Forever war exists to keep a small centralized group of people forever rich, and even a fictional world of snakes and metal gears needs to wrestle with this concept, because they are inextricable from one another. And that's where the guns of the patriots' war economy comes in. The war economy is a multi-layered construct. State militaries and private military companies are the base, but the weapons used, the bodies of soldiers, even those making an extra buck off the failings of the systems, i.e. gun launderers like Drebin, are all part of it. Armstech, the weapons manufacturer heavily featured in MGS1, is a proxy for defense companies in this game, and DARPA gets its fair share of mentions as well. The thing to note is just how well monetized all this rot is, how well controlled. I don't have to repeat ID tag weapons for ID tag soldiers again, you all know it. But the gun launderers are a great focus here. There was always going to be leaks in the system, some guns or some soldiers that would not be under SOP. What the system did was find a way to make that anomaly part of its system of control, <laughs> Matrix Reloaded, so the Patriots created their own artificial black market to recapture profits and control these weapons. In a more civilian analogy, this makes me think of the ticket scalpers outside of Wrigley Field who are actually owned and run by the Chicago Cubs themselves. Instead of trying to squash the secondary and black markets for tickets, the franchise found a way to get in on that sweet, sweet extra money, and that's basically how I view the Patriots and their Drebins here. 
And while on the topic of Drebins and the naked and naked guns, have you heard about ghost guns? Basically, it's a 3D printing or ordering of all the individual parts to a gun and assembling it yourself to bypass any sort of registration or identification requirement associated with owning a firearm. Just figure I'd throw that one out there. It's important also, like, we don't want to ascribe communist beliefs to Kojima, but it is important that as far as this country is concerned, any, anything anti-American is also communist. Like, they go hand in hand a lot. So... Like, if you were for some reason like a big neocon guy who likes this show, um, then to you, Kojima's communist. Yep. Because that's how the Overton window works in this fucked country we live in. We talked a lot about biomechanics and the medicine warfare overlap already. But perhaps the most vulgar thing in this game is the commodification of the human body as a soldier. The system basically can turn any person into grist for the warfare mill. And now you don't even need to have expensive or extensive training to create soldiers. With some nanomachines and VR, everyone can become a conduit for the Patriots to continue their system of control, which was indeed the next step of their plan as they purported to expand into the civilian population. And I'll do a bit of a mea culpa here, at least about my first time playing through this game in 2008. I've complained in this series about not being incentivized to crawl all over maps like in previous games, which isn't completely true. Early on, when I was angling to get the most powerful weapons from Drebin's shop, I did spend a lot of time trying to collect guns from soldiers on the battlefield, hoping to unlock the Mosin-Nagant and more powerful rocket launchers. I don't think it's as enticing as other games, but the gameplay and war economy themes do tie into each other. And we won't be done with the war economy in Metal Gear after this game either. In fact, it becomes the most prominent meme carried forward to our next titles. The idea of PMCs and Soldiers for Hire will really take shape in Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker in the form of Kazuhiro Miller, and then Climax in Metal Gear Solid V. Oh, I hear there will be a lot of PMC and War Economy chat when we get to Revengeance, too. A good amount. Not none. Time for you to put aside the gun and live. Time to hit another Podcast Sans Frontiers wrap-up staple discussions of pacifism and power fantasy as exemplified in theme and gameplay. It's hard following up on MGS3, which had the most sophisticated interplay. It opened the floodgates for non-lethal gameplay options, incentivizing it with the best item drops and rewards, and then punctuating the point by forcing the player to kill the boss at the end, regardless of how pacifist you were. While I don't think MGS4 is as tightly tuned, I do think it evolves or pushes forward some of those ideas in ways we can discuss in new ways. A lot of the same trappings are there from MGS3. Snake, though wielding lethal weaponry and occasionally firing blindly at enemies, never actually kills anyone in cutscenes. He does put a bullet in Vamp's forehead, but otherwise not a lot of lethal shots for Snake. His best moments in the game are him CQC incapacitating the Paradise Lost members and then crawling through a microwave. The incentives to play non-lethally are lessened. However, though, I think there is a point to that, or I'll put one on it. Fuck off. Defeating the bosses non-lethally in this game only gets you statues and face camos of the beauties, which aren't that useful overall. The statues will unlock the solar gun for subsequent playthroughs, a non-lethal sunlight-based weapon, and beating the game with no kills will get you the infinite ammo bandana and some special badges. But I want to create context here, because what sets MGS4 apart is that the battlefield is no longer you and the enemy. It is opposing forces in which Snake can choose to be indifferent and go about his own business, even though he's ostensibly opposed to the PMCs organized under Liquid Ocelot. This backdrop opens itself up to a couple, possibly conflicting, vectors of analysis. 
On one hand, no matter how peacefully you play this game, death is all around you. Soldiers on both sides are getting murked left and right, often dropping dead in your face as you sleuth around these maps. The, mer- the mercenaries you infiltrate with in Act 1 get squashed by Gecko, and Act 2 opens up with the firing squad execution style, all while laughing Octopus frame snake for their capture. All this death, I say in my Theoden voice, makes me wonder. Why even bother being a pacifist? If it's a snake-eat-snake world, what point does nonviolence have in it? This question is what starts to bring Metal Gear Solid into, per- into the purview of Forever War. The first two titles predate the War on Terror, and our war in Iraq was barely a year old when Snake Eater was released. But now we are past the invasion and fully into Quagmire, having utterly fucked the poor people of Iraq, Afghanistan, and their surrounding nations. The entire world is a battlefield, and in such a world of surveillance and tracking, there is no place to hide, or hideo, from it. In light of all this, one man's pacifism might seem meaningless or useless, and in that, render the overall messages of this game as nihilistic, something on par with The Walking Dead or the worst parts of Game of Thrones Season 5. But I'd vehemently argue that Kojima's games are anything but nihilistic. Challenging, melancholy, occasionally inscrutable, but still affirming and hopeful. Love blooms on Kojima's battlefield. It just can't help itself even in the face of so much death and hatred. Snake fights for everyone else. You fight the good fight for the sake of it, even if it's a no-chance, no-choice situation. And while Snake may not reap fortune and glory, either via in-game rewards or his own legend, everything he and the player do can make the world better for people around them. The game may focus on the system of patriot control as chains that bind us, but Snake's fight represents the bonds of fellowship that connect us as a community. At the simplest level, you can fight alongside mercenaries and earn their love, symbolized overtly with hearts over their heads. Same goes to the wolves of Shadow Moses, who fall in love with you when you give the gift of mercy to Crying Wolf. All the characters in Snake's Orbit ultimately benefit from his actions. Raiden and Rose reunite, Meryl reconciles with her father, the Colonel, while finding love in the process, Otacon hooks up with Naomi, Drebin can get drunk again, etc. It brings me back to Metal Gear Solid 2, which similarly does not reward the player excessively for pacifist play. But the end message of that game is that you can always positively affect the future, and in this game, we see that despite the punishment Snake endures, he's fighting for a better future for his comrades, because that's the will of Solid Snake in a nutshell. Face it, Snake. We've lost. Alakon. <coughs> We never stood a chance. (laughs) It's not about winning or losing. I know we started this. (sighs) And it's our duty to finish it. As per our previous wrap-up episodes, pacifism and non-lethal play fall under the umbrella of Metal Gear challenging the power fantasy. Whereas every other military game at best is indifferent to violence and at worst glorifies it, Metal Gear has done its best to confront the player with violence. It, It has always done this by humanizing the enemy combatants to us, something that stands in stark contract from the war what the war on terror does in real life. From the first Metal Gear Solid, soldiers yawned, peed, slept, and did all the things that make us human. 
This attention to humanity has escalated in every game since, and is fully realized here, wherein every human NPC has an emotional state in addition to health bars. These aren't just meat puppets, but humans who feel joy and sorrow and fear and fury. And in a world of forever war, their pain has no end. <laughs> they say things like, whose footprints are these? And Where the, who was that? What was that noise? What was that noise? Whose footprints are these? And listen, if I'm not saying that every day, then, then I'm not alive. Now, a lot, of, a lot of the power fantasy theme falls on the game's protagonist, who is often both pawn to larger forces and specifically debased over the course of the story. Raiden is perhaps the most cutting example, with his colorless and genderless introduction, making him the antithesis to the rugged, manly, and potentially heroic Solid Snake. With the franchise returning to its original hero and namesake, Kojima had to come up with other ways to take the piss out of Solid Snake for MGS4. The decision to make him old is simple, but effective, as you can tell by how I've gushed over this incarnation over the last 10 or so episodes. We're already a diminished version of our favorite dude, a phantom of our former self. While his mustache looks great and is more in these days of 2021, perhaps ironically, it definitely has more of a 70s dad feel on David, especially with the gray mullet to match. Snake is also once again denied romantic pairing, in no small part due to his advanced aging and deteriorating body. But that OTP from MGS1, Snake and Meryl, has no legs here, and we even see Meryl pair up with the hotter, younger, albeit more piss-filled, Akiba. The most embarrassing character in all of Metal Gear is a better prospect for Meryl. And that's just the start of the indignities. Naomi is horrified by Snake's body and their sexual tension with Big Mama, you know, Snake's surrogate mother. Big caveat I'll throw out here is that this is all through a heteronormative lens, which I don't think is necessarily Kojima's lens, but is Metal Gear reflecting Western and Hollywood cultural mores back at us. Snake does have plenty of romantic scenes with Otacon, of course, and their love is forever and undying. And just forgetting all that, Snake just gets his ass kicked throughout most of this game. He gets beaten down, shot, his nanos fucked with, nearly burned alive, nearly crushed, gets his ass handed to him by Liquid Ocelot, and requires saving quite a bit, whether from Drevin or Meryl or Raiden. The snake we are left with at the end of this game is a broken man, permanently scarred in ways his decades of fighting before had never touched him. And let's not forget that this entire game is framed as a last suicide mission, that you play under the pretense that Snake is going to die in the end anyway because of Fox die, and that if he doesn't, it will essentially mean the extinction of human race. Snake won't be riding off into the sunset on a snowmobile, oh no. As the start menu screen portends, Snake's end is most likely scattering his brains all over Big Boss's tombstone. I would say also it's, it's interesting. I don't know if this is ever explicitly brought up in the game, but he is more than likely impotent at this point. So, like, I just think that's a nice... I mean, Snake has never been... It's going to sound weird when I say this, considering how much... He's never been the horniest character, but he was certainly somewhat horny. And, like, even in this game, he just has no interest in women. Or men, really. He just sort of... He's completely plussed by Vamp. He's just like, whatever. I don't fucking care. Yeah. Um, like I think in the very first act when he first meets Meryl, um, just like in a kindly gesture, I think she just reaches out to kind of just like put her hand on his shoulder or touch his, you know, hand, and he just like <clears throat> and just like kind of shrugs it off. Like he's not interested in touching at all, much less anything more with any of the characters in this game. He's nothing with Mei Ling at all. Mm-hmm. Or Naomi. I would say I mean he has with Otak with Anakana with Ocelot, but that's always there. Yes. And then yeah, like you say with Big Mala. But those are those are also characters who are all 
his peers or betters in a way, I guess. Like those yeah. are the only people he has any, it's, it, I don't think it's notable that those are the characters he has any sexual attention with. Those are like the only character he has any emotional connection to whatsoever. Raiden mm-hmm. kind of, he feels responsible for Raiden. Yeah. Kind of as one of his sins in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, not completely, because Raiden was created by the Patriots, not by Solid Snake, but um, him getting all tangled up and probably losing his body in the process. I think Snake at least bears some responsibility for setting him on that path, so to speak. Snake believes he bears responsibility for that. Yeah, he he, he probably doesn't. But he also, like, um, at least be watching stuff this time, all the stuff about the Colonel, he doesn't seem to really care. It's it's like, whatever. Mm -hmm. He has no particular interest in what who the colonel is dating or what the colonel's doing he's just sort of like whatever i don't he's he's like you're gross but i'm not gonna discuss any further like none of my business essentially is what he does yeah For all that, Snake, in the very end, kind of gets his happily ever after ending. He doesn't have to kill himself, he doesn't become a WMD, and theoretically him and Otacon get to live peacefully after this, depending how much continuity you put into Revengeance. Thus, Snake gets a happy ending, which I think would unfairly get called fan service these days, which allows us to pivot to our final topic. Looking at our 2021 pop culture landscape can be bleak, even though I admittedly still enjoy much of the slop put out by Disney, Warner Brothers, Amazon, and all the rest. See the Batman in theaters in April in 2022. <laughs> Among the complaints for nostalgia-driven corporate IP is fan service, and giving those most loyal to the brand, an odious position that we all need to reject, something to hang their hat on. I do think it can be done well, say cap-wielding Mjolnir in Endgame perhaps, but more often done poorly, like Chewbacca getting a medal in The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, God, (laughs) I forgot about that. (laughs) It's it's something that can only really have significance to us as people who've seen the movie, um, because if Chewbacca was walking around with a chip on his shoulder because he didn't get a medal from an event 30 years ago, it's just, what? (laughs) Yeah, sorry. Awful movie. <laughs> no, you're you're right to be mad at that. It's it's correct. It's always correct to dunk on the rise of Skywalker. Fan service goes hand in hand with the power fantasy, and in denying the latter, you often deny the former. Snake being old, not getting the girl, getting his ass beat, and generally living under miserable circumstances denies players the thing they wanted since 1998 to play as a fully realized heroic and badass young solid snake. The the thing with the ending of this game being fan servicey is that it's not because you don't. We don't get to see it. Mm-hmm. It's for Snake. It's not for the fans. Snake gets the ending. The fans do not. Yes. It's not for us, which I think is nice. Canon and continuity is another aspect of Metal Gear Solid worth discussing. The first three games are all obviously explicitly connected, especially the first two, which are mimetic copies of one another. But they are also three different stories with three separate protagonists that can all exist outside of each other or operate independently. As we discussed when we wrapped Metal Gear Solid 3, it forced the player to then put together the pieces of their larger saga, from the unknown trajectory of Big Boss to what Snake, Raiden, and Atacan do following the Big Shell incident. 
MGS4 challenges the player thusly. Kojima told his story, but after the negative reaction to MGS4 being announced as a non-Kojima game, he was brought in to once again bring his aging franchise to life. And because everyone is so content at looking backwards rather than forwards, more of the same as opposed to something new, his story team took a new approach. What if we gave you all of it? And it just isn't satisfying, even though it's what you wanted. Instead of surreal open-endedness of the previous games, Metal Gear Solid 4 goes out of its way to give you continuity answers, even answers you didn't know you needed and some you don't really want. How does the blood of the East flow through Snake's veins? Well, because his sperm was joined with a Japanese woman's ovum. Is Ocelot really liquid? No, it's just nanomachines and hypnosis. Is Vamp immortal? No, it's just nanomachines. How does Mantis control other people? You better believe it's nanomachines. Nanomachines, son. <laughs> Who are the Patriots? It's not Lali Lule Lo, but Zero, Sigint, Paramedic, Eva, Ocelot, and most of all, Big Boss. For Paramedic, it's a whole, wholly unsatisfying turn of character. And instead of revealing some new aspect of Metal Gear lore or sharpening its critique of the American power structure, it's just remembering some guys from other games. <laughs> we are getting answers, yes, but they leave us feeling empty, whereas the questions at the end of the first three games were fulfilling. I think just all this stands out specifically in 2021. Anyone who follows me on Twitter knows how much I hate the wickification of pop culture, reducing games and cinema and story to bullet points on a website divorced of context. But then he means he hates, he hates John Wick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Keanu Reeves specifically. <laughs> that, 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 that's why the internet is overrun with 10 Easter eggs you missed in Shang-Chi or The Green Endings Night Explained. Art, instead of being a gateway and touchstone towards human condition, becomes a list of facts. The who's and where's are never as interesting as the how's and why's, and what makes Metal Gear Solid my favorite games is basically because it firmly lives in the why. Not that it tells you why, but it actively challenges players to be thinking about that in a way other media doesn't, and I'll just apologize if I sound like, you know, Agent Smith or the Merovingian there. When we talked about Metal Gear Solid 2, we talked about the Wild West of the digital age, how movies and games hadn't standardized and commodified itself yet. Well, we are now in 2008, mired in forever war, the birthing of the MCU, and standardizing the annualization of non-sports games. The rot has been monetized, and the assembly line of content had been built and was starting to take over. Metal Gear Solid 4 Guns of the Patriots takes aim at all of this, the why of it all. Why do we still look to the past for what we want? Why do we want answers to every dangling thread? Why do we want to live out these hyper-masculine power fantasies? MGS4 challenges us on these fronts because in doing so, it acknowledges a humanity within us, the player, one that may be fleeting. And when we get to Peace Walker and especially the Phantom Pain, we will see how fighting this war without end makes us less and less human. Maybe you all will think that I'm being generous, and yeah, I probably am. But the reason we have been able to ring out 30-plus episodes out of Metal Gear Solid is that Kojima and his team do put this level of thought into creating the games, and in doing so creates a mind from which we can greedily delve for meanings in ways we all do as individuals. We should be thankful we have art that is complex, challenging, and not just here to affirm our priors. Even the mighty patriots began with a single man. That one man's desires grew huge, bloated, absorbed technology, began to manipulate the economy. We realized too late that 
We had created a beast. We had helped turn zero into 100. His sin was ours. And for that reason, I'm taking it upon myself to send Zero back to nothing. So that wraps us on Metal Gear Solid 4, and as per normal, we will take a little break in between games to catch up and start planning out the next phase of our coverage, which will be Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker, with Revengeance and Metal Gear Solid B to follow. And to reaffirm that our interest is high, I do want to reiterate that when we ranked MGS titles in our first episode, I had MGSB as my number two title and Peace Walker as my number three title. Not sure if that still stands because I'm way higher on Metal Gear Solid 2 now following our analysis. But these upcoming titles are ones I've been looking forward to this entire time, and my wish, my truly fox-dying wish, is to make Metal Gear Solid V the crown jewel of our analysis. And again, it's important to note that he has not played Revengeance, so that will be a fun... Mm -hmm. We're going to get a lot of that one of just... I think we're going to do more... I have no, I mean, we haven't planned this out, but I think we're probably going to do more granular, like moment to moment coverage of like reactions to that game. Right. Cause I'm not, everything we've covered so far is stuff I've been able to kind of divorce, um, like mm-hmm. my immediate reaction from and just mm-hmm. sit on. Whereas this is going to be something that's going to have a level of immediacy, which is just going to be really fun. It's also much shorter. Yeah. It's like a six or seven hour game, I think. In the meantime, we will have a couple extra episodes uh, to keep you fulfilled. Uh, We'll do an episode on the character of Solid Snake so we could wrap up his arc since we won't be talking about him much going forward and put a coda on his character and see if any of our opinions have changed. I think we're also going to do a bonus episode um, talking about the Metal Gear Solid movie. Um, There isn't much officially out there besides director and Oscar Isaac as Solid Snake. So now might be a fun time to just do some what we think the movie should be, what we think it will be, and more importantly, who we fan cast as all our favorite characters. Circling back to what we started this for. (laughs) Yes, Uh, we literally started this podcast uh, probably about a year ago from when you're actually going to end up listening to this um, because of the announcement that Oscar Isaac was going to be cast as Solid Snake. So it feels like a good time to, uh, you know, bring that one up since it's kind of the founding reason for this podcast.
So that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsansfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support Podcast Sans Frontiers and all my other projects at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which is me. Hey, I've been Manu. You can find me covering the Lord of the Rings over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. And I'm still Brian, I guess. Nano's got me where I am today. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And so, for the last time, here's to you. It's always correct to be dunk on the rise of Skywalker. I was talking with someone last night. Is, is it is it worse than Attack of the Clones? And we couldn't decide. And you know what my deciding factor was? I looked up their run times, and you'll never guess it. They have the exact same run time. Oh, my God. Shit. <laughs> They're both two hours and 22 minutes, which is just, that's too long. Brutal. I don't dislike the cast of the rise of Skywalker, but no. I think just Ian McGregor and attack of the clones is what would probably make me slightly prefer that as, I mean, they're both not good movies. <laughs> no. And, and I think we came to the conclusion that, um, the detective Obi-Wan stuff is decent enough to give it the advantage, yeah. which is depressing. And we got Elon Slees Bongo or whatever his name yeah. is. Yeah. Um, which yeah, that was one positive contribution to the star Wars. Ba- I guess Slees Bago. Yeah, there you go. And uh, uh, the Rise of Skywalker gave us Babu Frick, who's fine. I have no problems with Babu. Really thought I was really thought we were going to get more out of uh, oh, what's her Carrie Russell's character in that. I thought she'd be, but she just was there. Anyways, anyways, <laughs> bad movie, <laughs> bad bad movie. Reducing games and cinema and story to bullet points on a website divorced of context. But that he means he hates he hates John Wick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Keanu Reeves specifically. <laughs> that. <laughs> Uh, shit. <laughs> <laughs>